Welcome to the Teacher's Podcast, in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. My guest today is Kim Griffin an occupational therapist who has been working with children with SEN for nearly 20 years now. Her current focus is providing online training and schemes of work for educators, and her flagship course is on sensory processing, which is what we're going to talk about today. Kim is really keen to ensure that the training explains the why behind the what as well. So she's here today to chat all things sensory processing and how the way children process their environment can affect their behaviour. Let's get to the interview. Kim, welcome to the Teachers Podcast. Hi, Claire. It's great to be here. So you're in sunny Australia right now. So we found yes. a really good time to chat. Um, thankfully, it's not in the middle of the night for you. I was a bit worried about that. So good. Um, anyway, right. So let's talk about sensory processing. So can you explain what sensory processing is? in simple terms for me mainly, um, but for anyone who has not heard of it before. Sure. So when I use the term sensory processing, I'm thinking about how the brain is processing or interpreting the sensory messages it receives from the environment and the body. So it's different to a sensory impairment. So it's different to if someone's deaf or if someone's blind. In those cases, there's actually a problem, say, with their eyes or with their ears, and the messages aren't actually coming in in the first place in the same way. When OTs, I'm an occupational therapist, so when OTs use the term sensory processing, they're referring to, okay, so the ears have heard that information or the eyes have seen or the skin has felt, what does the brain then do with that information and how does it react to that information? How does it use that information to plan activities and how does it use that information to stay engaged in learning? So I will just put the caveat in there because I know it's incredibly confusing. Sensory processing disorder, although the term is used very frequently, it's still not a medically diagnosable disorder as such so even though you'll read and hear the term and it'll be in medical documents um it, it doesn't exist as a disorder in its own right um it has been very much included in the autism diagnosis in the last uh updates to that but it hasn't been included as its own disorder as such even though a lot of um researchers are trying to work towards getting it identified as a standalone so I'll just put that caveat in there at the beginning because I know it's 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 very confusing yeah that is really interesting to know you explained that so well so it's not that we don't have the the senses it's not it's not that we're not receiving them like you said the information it's just how we how we use that information I guess well yeah and then it do you want me to explain sort of the breakdown? I mean, there's, there's a couple of different models of sensory processing, sensory integration. Yeah, that would be Most great because them, none yeah. of that makes sense to me. <laughs> <Go>. <laughs> so so the, the original term 
that was used by Jean Ayres, who's essentially seen as the grandmother of sensory integration, sensory processing. She used the term sensory integration. And her model uh, used a very specific assessment called the sensory integration of praxis test. It's a very in-depth test. And she broke her diagnosis down into things like dyspraxia, uh, which often included a lot of difficulties with processing touch sense is something she loaded there and also organizing your movement and planning what your movement's going to be. She also, although her model didn't uh, strictly include what is now called reactivity, she did notice that some children had uh, bigger responses to particularly touch um, than others. So like mm. in one of the assessments, um, there's this little puppet and you, it touched your nose and some of the children would like freak out when it when the puppet came near them or touched them and she noticed or when they were, their skin was being touched, she noticed that their reaction was almost a fright reaction to what you would think of as sort of normal touch or, you know, not it shouldn't be scary touch. Um as the, as the sort of diagnoses are such as, or diagnosis is the wrong word, as, as the model has evolved, the current model of sensory processing includes what they call modulation. So that's your response to information. So if the clock's ticking, can you ignore it? Or if you do get that touch, do you get a fright or do you not even notice? So there's that differentiation between over-response over or what you'll read as hyper-reactive or a slower under-response or a hypo-reaction. So there's those two types of reaction and obviously there's the in the middle. But as an OT, I don't see the in the middle kids. I see the top, <laughs> I see the top and the bottom. I never, it's very rare for me to see an in the middle child. Um, and then the movement side of things in with things like dyspraxia and um, also what's called discrimination. So the ability to actually identify the qualities of sensation. So if you hear a noise, where was it? Was it behind you, in front of you, on your left or on your right? Was it loud? Was it soft? Because if you struggle with that, it, it makes sort of engaging in the environment much more difficult. Mm. Does it does it improve then? Just thinking about. Um you know, the touch mm. thing you were talking about there. Yeah. You said that you work with children who um, are high and low. Yeah. Can, can it be improved? Um, or do you kind of just learn to live with it as an adult? So there's a couple of pieces there. There's definitely, um, the literature will definitely show some changes. So particularly, um, so movement seeking seems to be more common in younger children and that seems to decrease uh, in the literature as an overall that seems to decrease as children get older with things like touch sensitivity the literature would suggest that 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 neurological the neurological threshold as such is there um but when you become an adult, so say school uniforms are tricky for you. Say you find the fabric of your school uniform itchy, scratchy, and horrible. When you're an adult, you don't have to wear a school uniform. You can adjust your environment in, mm. in a much greater way than you can as a child, and you can adjust it um, very differently 
to if you're having to go to school because when you go to school there's so much that you sort of just really have to conform with because school is set up in a particular mm. structure and in a particular way so yeah as, as the children become adults it's not necessarily um there, there, there is definitely a shift for for some of the reactions and and some people find strategies that support them so say for example touch sensitivity often uh, a lot of proprioceptive so that's that's the movement that the input you get from your muscles and joints when you move so that can be quite calming so kids maybe with touch sensitivity they might swim they might cycle they might be their activities that help to keep their system calmer and that decreases their touch sensitivity but it's those activities that are sort of helping to dampen mm. that that response that is there um and a lot of autistic adults will report that their sensory sensitivities are are still very real and mm-hmm. still very there. And yes, they may have shifted and changed through, you know, as as they've grown up, they've they've learned strategies to compensate, which you know, which which are hugely helpful. Uh, they might not go to events or certain things that they know will trigger them, which keeps them calmer. <laughs> so rather than doing the three things that make them totally overloaded they choose one of them and they're a bit overloaded rather than fully overloaded um so yeah children often have a lot less choice in how they structure their day and and their life really so um it yeah there there, there is definitely a change but the literature would suggest that that it it is a lifelong sort of neurological uh what's the word um yeah, just threshold, sort of baseline. That 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 is mm. there as a lifelong piece. Yeah, you just you just learn learn to live with it. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um. Okay, then. So, I feel like I've had a really in depth science lesson. Um. So, why is it important then that teachers understand sensory processing? How can it, um, how can it help them in the classroom? In the classroom. So, I think for me, the biggest, the biggest aha really is the impact that it has on behavior and I think often when educators so teachers teaching assistants um support staff if if they're not aware of sensory because typically what you observe if a child's got a sensory need is a behavior so they're either avoiding or they're kicking off because their peer touched them you know they got bumped into and they hit their they hit their peer because for them that bumping into actually felt like they'd been hit so they turn around and they hit their peer and then they get sent to the principal's the head teacher's office and they're in trouble or they're maybe not joining in in PE and they're always feeling sick and having to go to the school nurse or um the the sensory say you know say they might do really well in the library because it's nice and quiet but then you get to PE lesson which is a lot noisy a lot more echo if it's in the hall and the child's not managing it sometimes not always there are definitely other things at play (laughs) for children but for some children it is an underlying sensory need that actually is causing that behavior and if you're treating it with like a behavioral approach like you know I had one little boy who was touch sensitive and he used to hit his peers in the coat room because it was a small most schools in the UK, I find they've got these little cloak rooms where you mm. put your coat up and your bag up and then you go into class. And his was, it, it was particularly small and particularly crowded. 
Um, and I think they were year three, so the kids are getting that bit bigger as well. Mm. And he used to hit kids, and he'd get sent to the principal's office, and there's this beautiful sofa that he could sit at outside the principal's office. Like, for him, that's a reward because it's quiet, there's no one touching yeah. him. And his behaviour didn't change, but when I shifted it to, okay, you can go into the cloakroom first, and if you hit a child, you have to write lines. And I'm not one for old school punishment, but I knew he hated handwriting, so I chose something that was a real thing that he hated. And we put in a we, we put in an adaption for him as well that he could go in first, so therefore he wouldn't be touched and it wouldn't be overloading. He didn't hit another child. So, but without that kind of awareness of sensory, if you just continue to treat it as naughty behaviour um, and disobedient behaviour, he could have been excluded in another couple of weeks because he was, you know, he was hitting. Um, so, it, yeah, for, for me it's just that that if you've got that understanding of sensory processing of all your different senses, you understand why that kid can't get their glue stick off or why when they go to reach for the pencils they're pushing over their peers because their proprioceptive awareness is so poor they don't know where their body is. They're not deliberately stepping on their peer or they're not deliberately, like, hitting their peer with their arm. They just have no idea where their body is. So if you mm. make that adjustment of, okay, well, we'll give you a bit more space <laughs> beside yeah. you, then that actually resolves the issue. But telling them to, like, be careful is not necessarily going to help them because they genuinely – they're not being obstinate. <laughs> they genuinely don't know where their body is. Um, like, yeah. as a complete – as a complete a side note, I'm at home at the moment and I was reading my ballet. I'm, I'm going through all my old old stuff and I was reading my ballet reports from when I was like five years to 11 years old. Every year they said my arms weren't aligned. Every year they commented on how bad my arm position is. I am quite hyper mobile and I don't have great proprioceptive awareness. The reason my arms in ballet were horrible is because I just I, I, I couldn't get them aligned very well. And, you know, my teachers for six years tried to fix that using whatever strategies they were using in the 80s and 90s. And it, <laughs> the outcome is my arms are still terrible. terrible. Yeah, it's, so. it's interesting you're saying that and you've brought that in because the whole time you've been talking, what I've been thinking about is that I don't like being touched. Um, mm. Like I, you know, if, you know, if somebody comes up and pokes you in the arm, to, yeah. that feels like really painful to me. Yeah. Um, and I've like looked it up like what is this thing I do not like being touched and yeah. um, it's quite funny because we've opened the office again at Classroom Secrets and um, as part of the whole Covid thing people have got lanyards and okay. um, just, just like how comfortable are you with like being touched or not like you can have a red one if you don't want to be hugged yellow if you're okay or green if you're in for everything and I was like I want a red one but not for Covid just anyway don't come and hug me. I don't like it. Yeah, so I mean, it's really interesting to listen because I'm thinking, hmm, this yeah. is in my lifestyle now. Yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, I like the, the lanyards are great and I've seen them particularly at autistic conferences. Like they're very common in terms of like, yeah, I'm happy to chat or no. And you can, some of them do ones that turn around so you can kind of, you can regulate it through the day. Like, yeah, they came out, mind, yeah. but. But like later on, you can you can slip it out to like leave me alone. <laughs> like I've, yeah. I've had my feel go away, um, and I, I think they're a great idea in terms of uh, just for regular people. Because I mean, there are there there are times where you're just like actually, 
I could do with a 10 minute, like, just stay away from me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Okay, right then. So why are you so passionate then about educating people on sensory needs of children? I think the thing that drives me is very much the change that I see and that just that aha when I can share that knowledge and people, it just makes so much sense. Like when sensory is the issue and when sensory is the driver, it just makes so much sense and you can put the supports in place or the changes in place or the environmental adaptations in place and you just can make such a difference in that child's ability to engage and participate. Um, and and that that's what I love to be able to do because I know I know that difficulty with sensory processing really does impact functionally. It impacts engagement. It impacts learning. And to be able to sort of see the change it makes when you're supporting those kids um, appropriately, uh, it's just yeah, it's fantastic. And I know the kids. I know the kids and parents, and even the teachers. Like I know on my training, because I have on my training uh, on sensory processing, and what, you know, I go through all the senses and. Um, the different types of responses and what they look like and how to support them and the number of teachers that just sort of say I wish this was included in my in my original training or like oh my lord so much stuff of you know the behaviors that I've seen for x y and z child have just made sense or even the neurology I cover some of the neurology and the fight flight freeze response and things like that and it's it's not taught in teacher training and I mean, the literature would suggest that somewhere between 5 to 15% of people have sensory differences. I mean, that's three to five kids in every classroom. So it's not like you're going to come across one of these kids in your teaching career. You probably have three of these kids in your classroom right now. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it's not this obscure kind of, yeah. you know, thing. It's, it's, it's pretty common. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love this and I think I've learned obviously a lot of my, a lot more about the brain since I left teaching. Mm. But it does make you think, you know, why did we not know this in teaching? I suppose part of the problem is as a teacher you can feel like you you need to know everything. Um and we what we want to do is be able to say, "Oh, I don't need to worry about that." But yeah. I think just continually learning something new like this is is so important and helps us so much. So, you're a teacher and you've been listening to this and you're thinking, this is amazing. I, I've learned something new, just like Claire. It's been a science lesson. Um, what are the three actionable steps that uh, people could try out right now? Yeah, so I think step number one would be if you're not familiar with the eight senses. So there's, you'll know sight, touch, taste, smell, hearing. But if you're not familiar with the terms proprioception, vestibular, and interoception, I would highly recommend doing some reading on them. Um, I'll do my self-promotion in there. I've got three articles on my website and I've got a free one-hour training on them that you can do. And there are lots, like, there are loads and loads of websites out there that cover the information. I'm biased towards mine, obviously. Um, but That's why here to talk about, isn't find, it? Yeah, you, you will find the information. And there's, um, can I include, um, can I include a couple of book references in the notes sure. of the show? 
yeah, I'll include, I'll send Claire a couple because there's, there's a couple which I should know off the top of my head, but I never remember the author's names correctly. But I'll include them as well. So there's a couple of books that are, are really nice, just introductions to understanding step three. Uh, step number two is just to start, once you've done step one, is to start just reframing your observations slightly of behavior to think, well, could could this actually have a sensory need? Or even layering into that, could there be a language or um, just another learning need in there? Because I, I know we're talking about sensory, but it's, it's not always sensory. It, it could be that language or that other learning need. Like what's, what's actually the driver of this behaviour? Because in my experience, it's for most of these kids, the behaviour is just that, the external thing you finally see, but there's usually thing, things sort of underlying it. If you can unpick those, mm. um, and if you need help from your synchro to do that, you know, approach them. But putting those sensory goggles into your unpicking will hopefully help just with that, give you that that, that broader um, ability perspective. Um, and number three would be to you know, to consider the just as a whole class where are your children in terms of their i haven't touched on arousal but i i pull arousal so that a level of alertness and energy i pull that into um sensory processing as well because it your 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 senses sort of impact your arousal and attention to engage in that so just thinking about your classroom and thinking about what are the sensory inputs that the children are experiencing in your classroom and are they allowing them to focus on that or you know is it really busy visually you know do you have loads and loads of visual kind of things up that actually for a child that might find their visual attention tricky that might be really distracting so just having a look at your classroom and thinking well is this potentially overloading for a child that does experience that sensory sensitivity and how is my class managing their own arousal do you know do we occasionally need to do that energizing uh, they call them brain breaks sometimes like do we need to do that energizer or that movement break to bring their arousal up or do we need to drop their arousal down to sort of get them ready and, and engaged for learning yeah so that would be my three a bit of education on sensory uh thinking about sensory when you're doing your behavior analysis and just thinking about the setup of your classroom and the sensations that the kids are experiencing in there and how they're impacting their ability to sort of focus and be ready for learning they're amazing tips kim thank you and um, so you talked about that you've got a free training and articles on your website um where where can we find you so it's just griffinot.com uh so my surname is griffin so it's about the same like the mythical uh creature half well half lion half eagle i think i always get it the wrong way around it could be half eagle half lion, i don't know uh so yeah griffinot.com and again if you just search griffin ot or even usually kim griffin in google i think i've done well enough on my seo that i pop up reasonably close to the top and um yeah there's a sensory menu on the website there and i'm on all the usual i'm on all the usual social channels i think i've already shared them with claire but i can um 
We can I can send them, the send them across and put them in the show notes as well. So yeah, it's usually some form of Griffin OT. I think Facebook's Griffin Sensory OT. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm around. Super. Well, thank you so much. I've definitely learned something today. I'm going to be thinking next time somebody tries to poke me. <laughs> oh, me. please don't do that. <laughs> and that's okay to put those boundaries in place. So completely okay. Yeah, which I do. Like, do not hug me. I'm not doing a hug. <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you so much. It's been a lovely chat. I'm going to let you go to bed right. now. Yes, yes. <laughs> Have a good day. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.